Coming to you from Silver Lake, Los Angeles, California, I'm Colin Marshall. This is the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. Today I'm sitting down in LARB HQ with two fellows who, let's just say, maybe they don't know everything about Roman Polanski. Nobody does, but even Roman Polanski, I don't think, knows everything about Roman Polanski, but they're experts. They know more about Roman Polanski than I do, and I enjoy a Roman Polanski movie. To my right sits James Greenberg. He is the author of a new book, Roman Polanski, A Retrospective. He's also the editor-in-chief of DGA, the quarterly of the Directors Guild of America. To my left sits James Morrison, novelist, memoirist, author of, a few years back, the Contemporary Film Directors Series volume on Roman Polanski. He also teaches film and literature and creative writing at Claremont McKenna. Gentlemen, we're, we're here in Los Angeles, and you can't talk about Los Angeles film without mentioning Roman Polanski's Chinatown. We know the place of Chinatown in Los Angeles lore, but what is the place of Chinatown in Polanski's career? I think it's probably his first or second best uh, film and uh, a masterpiece and one of my personal favorites. Uh, I was... Um, I asked Polanski once about it, and uh, well, a number of times, but uh, not. I, I first met him in 1991, and uh, a few years after that, I had been watching him uh, film on the set in uh, Paris, and he was giving me a ride back uh, to town, and I felt comfortable enough to start gushing about Chinatown. <laughs> and uh, he kind of looked at me and said, oh, not so great. Not so great. He, he's, not a fan, he's not the fan of Chinatown well, you are. I, I understood it. He is. But uh, what I understood about that later was he was more uh, protective of his other children, uh, Fearless Vampire killer, Killers or some of the uh, other films that had been cast off. And Chinatown didn't need his... Uh, uh, support and push mm. because it's generally regarded as uh, one of the masterpieces of uh, uh, film for the last uh, fifty years. Mm. And uh, but uh, subsequently, I did I did um, pin him down, and uh, I think he believes that and the pianist are his uh, two uh, two best films. Mm. He admits Chinatown is good. He just doesn't think it needs his assistance to take flight. It's long since taken flight. On its own. Exactly. Mm. He likes to be a little contrary. <laughs> <laughs> James Morrison, where do you see Chinatown in, in his filmography? What is, what is its role in, in Roman Polanski's career to date? Uh, it ranks very high, mm. of course. But I can understand his own response to it because I would think of it as being one of his least personal films. Mm. It's the one that's most generically pure you could say. Mm. Uh, it's a neo-noir uh, that uh, appeared amid a spate of 1970s neo-noirs. Mm. So it was actually quite typical of that era of the new Hollywood, though, of course, incomparably better than almost all of them. <laughs> but if you think of it in relation to his other sort of genre experiments, including The Fearless Vampire Killers, which is mm. one of his most personal films, uh, it... Uh, it, it is polished and it's impeccable in its technique. Mm. It's slick. <laughs> and, you know, I think he values all of those things. But in the films of his that are most personal to him, uh, from the vantage point of looking at his career in overview, uh, there is usually a kind of counterweight to those qualities of 
polish and mm. slickness. And of course, some of the most personal films don't have those qualities at all. Mm. And um, so in a way, it may be one of his least complex films to talk about, at least in terms of its position within his, his career as a whole. Mm. Well, one thing I would add to that is that uh, it was not a film that he wanted to do initially. He was uh, uh, in uh, Rome and uh, wasn't anxious to come back to, to the States to, uh, to do it. And... Uh, uh, he was contacted by Nicholson and Robert Evans, and they had this uh, material for him. And uh, he realized that uh, material that good didn't come along that often. Mm-hmm. So, but it was not a, uh, in that sense, it was not a uh, a personal project. He, I think, I would argue that he made it personal, mm-hmm. but it wasn't uh, a project that he, like some of his others, that he had been. Uh, uh, developing for, for many years. Mm. What is the mark of a personal Roman Polanski project? What, what qualities stand out as identifying a film as one very close to his heart? Well, we should, uh, we could pick out any number of films. I, I, I think of uh, Cul-de-sac, for instance, which is close to his heart. Uh, his feeling about that is that it was a um, it was speci- specifically a film. It couldn't be done in any other medium. It mm-hmm. couldn't be a play. It couldn't be uh, a story. It was perfectly cinematic, and uh, it was a uh, project that he worked on with his frequent collaborator Gerard Brock. They did something like ten films together, and it was the film that he wrote after A Knife in the Water and that he wanted to do next and was unable to do until after he did uh, had some success with Repulsion. Mm. So I, I think you see some of the, uh, the classic uh, Polanski uh, uh, tropes in, in, in cul-de-sac, the, uh, uh, the claustrophobia, the... Uh, uh, the isolation, the uh, uh, antagonism between the, the couples, the uh, uh, the black humor, mm. the uh, that, that, that's something that I think uh, gets uh, missed a lot in Polanski is that uh, they all the films are humorous at least to him, <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, uh, you know sometimes he thought the tenant was was a hoot. And uh, uh, when he talks about it, he said, oh, you know, when uh, he uh, the character jumps off the uh, jumps out of their window the second time uh, or jumps off the first time, doesn't doesn't kill himself and goes back up. He said, oh, wasn't that hilarious? (laughs) So, uh, uh, again, it's a very black sense of humor. And sometimes it's so black that people don't pick it up as being funny. On the same page as his diehard fans, but not necessarily the wider public as far as the sensibility goes. You mentioned humor, but does this extend to the other qualities? A Roman Polanski film is distinctive and very appealing to someone who enjoys Roman Polanski movies, but perhaps in an off-putting way to other people? Well, uh, yes, he hasn't had that many uh, uh, you know, breakout hits. Mm. That I guess The Pianist was somewhat successful, but... Uh, 
offhand, I couldn't say what his highest uh, grossing film film was. Maybe you know. I don't offhand. Yeah. Uh, mm. Maybe for the for the uh, making allowances for uh, inflation, Chinatown. Yeah. Yeah. Chinatown. <laughs> but I uh, I would agree that uh, with everything James has said, and just add that uh, it's a kind of a quality of excruciation, mm, that, excruciation. Uh, <laughs> that makes a Polanski film, I think, uh, very close to uh, his, his own heart. Uh, um, and at the same time, um, these countercurrents that appear in the films, I think the films that are least critically valued are often among the ones that Polanski himself values the most. Mm. And one of the reasons for that is because he values elements of the unexpected, uh, strange turns, something a little off right. in some of the tonalities. And, uh, you know, he really does invite the viewer to adopt a position of pleasure in relation to excruciating materials. For example, uh, it's very hard to imagine an audience not groaning in that scene where Trelkovsky and the tenant goes up, goes back up to the balcony to jump out a second time as if the first time were not enough. Mm -hmm. But that sort of pushing of the, uh, you know, the, the threshold of how far you can go really mm -hmm. uh, is uh, something that I associate with Polanski's personal films. When the, when the tenant came out, uh, it played at, uh, it played at Cannes, and it was uh, his first film after Chinatown, so he was uh, riding a wave, and uh, the film was uh, just ruthlessly panned at Cannes, uh, much to uh, everyone's disappointment. He said uh, afterwards they all went off to Saint-Tropez and got drunk. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, But uh, I think he was surprised and, and, again, very, very disappointed that People didn't get the uh, get the film, and uh, it's not an easy film to get. And I, I think that's true of many of uh, many of his pictures. And if if not, certainly elements in them. They're not. They don't coddle an audience. Mm. Uh, he has no no time and patience for that, uh, either in person or or uh, uh, in his movies. You mentioned, James Morrison, this inverse relationship between the critics and Polanski on his own filmography. He likes the ones the critics don't, and vice versa. And I would think a critic who sees 500 movies a year would long to see the surprises and askew turns a Polanski film would make, but but it's, it doesn't play so well with them. You would think that, wouldn't you? Yes. Uh, which makes it quite remarkable that, mm -hmm. that, at least in the United States, critical taste tends to be so straight-laced. Mm -hmm. I, I guess I would say that in the last 20 years, in large part, I think due to Polanski wouldn't like this characterization, but maybe a certain cultish mm. ambience about some of his most interesting and complicated films mm. uh, has become a little bit more of a mainstream taste. Mm. So that a film like The Ninth Gate divides critics very vehemently. Right. There are those who see it as being very much a kind of um, personal film, as it were, and those who simply think it's bad. I'm in the latter category. Oh, you, think, you, think it's, you think it's bad. The Ninth Gate is, it's, you know, I, 
I'm of a different generation than a lot of Polanski fans, so The Ninth Gate was the first one I saw theatrically. Not the first Polanski film I saw, but the first one where I could go and say, I'm watching a Roman Polanski film in a theater. Uh, I don't remember disliking it, but yeah, let's, let's see. How, is, that, is that the bottom of the Polanski barrel for you, James Greenberg? Uh, let me, I have to check his filmography <laughs> here. Uh, it's close. Why, why is it so... Why, why does it not show off his advantages? What is unsuited about this well, I, film? I, I think sometimes the uh, – again, that's a film that he thought was hilarious or, <laughs> or at least uh, humorous. And he said he didn't think he got the performance he wanted from Johnny Depp, that mm. uh, he didn't understand the humor in the, uh, uh, in the character. He said he was a fine actor, and, uh, but uh, he didn't uh, give him the character that he wanted. Mm. Uh, I, I, there are, there's always something interesting in a, in a Polanski film. The, uh, the, the staging and the setup and the, uh, uh, the, the character interaction and the costumes are, he's, he's just a, uh, uh, you know, a master, a masterful filmmaker. So there's always something to watch. There's always scenes to watch. Mm. Uh, in terms of The Ninth Gate, I think the story lets him down. I think it's just uh, so uh, over the top and, and ridiculous in a way. Uh, the beginning part is, is, uh, is kind of a tight, a tight thriller. Um, as, the, as it's set up, the framework is set up. Uh, Johnny Depp's the... Uh, uh, a rare book dealer, and he comes upon a volume that may or uh, be the key to uh, uh, making the uh, making Satan manifest himself. And uh, he goes off on a hunt, and the, the hunt just becomes increasingly uh, a Byzantine. And in the end, it just uh, explodes in not one but two. I think three three <laughs> fires at the end. He, 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 lo- he, lo- he likes the special effects. Yes. He was he was particularly happy with uh, being able to play with that. But uh, uh, I, I thought it it really kind of unravels as it goes along. Yes, I think it's interesting uh, to look at in terms of the first film in which he's really working with digital technologies. Mm. And, uh, you know, he's always been very, very interested in technique. Uh, his films um, uh, fall very much in line, though they're usually a little more advanced in mm. terms of their use of available technologies of the day. One thinks, for example, of the uses of sound in Rosemary's Baby, which are really path-breaking in the new Hollywood. Uh, and, uh, you know, the easeful incorporation of these sort of smooth and silky digital effects in The Ninth Gate is really dazzling. And it's certainly true that uh, one could hope for more uh, in the narrative realm, <laughs> but but you know it's a campy film, so it's in in line with the fearless vampire killers and pirates, and uh, has what's bad and what's good about that kind of commitment to an aesthetic, yeah. right? I, I agree. I think that's what P- Polanski was shooting for, and uh, uh, didn't didn't quite pull off. But I think he. He was viewing it as as a sort of parody, sort of satire, as as fearless vampire killers, but um, it uh, I don't think it uh, reaches that. I don't think it's apparent what he's up to. Now we've mentioned movies from all over his filmography, Oliver Polanski's filmography, and he's of course still making them today, still hard at work. But 
I want to get a sense of how you both approached his filmography for your books. And, and I'll start with you, James Morrison. Writing your contemporary film director's volume on him, how did you, knowing you had to get a grasp on all his movies to date for that book, how did you go about it? Well, I would like to begin by saying what is uh, remarkable about James Greenberg's book, which is a magnificent production that every uh, admirer of Polanski must get immediately. You you just won't believe the riches of it. Uh, so that films that uh, in most critical accountings are, shall we say, minimized, <laughs> receive a really full treatment. All of the films are treated and we, we get a lot of background material. In my own, the lesser efforts in my own book, which is a critical uh, treatment of the work of Polanski, the, what I take to be the lesser efforts, such as Pirates and Frantic and The Ninth Gate, uh, are spoken of very, very uh, briefly. Uh, so uh, you can't say anything nice. Don't say anything at all. <laughs> that was the philosophy that was uh, b being brought to bear. And I um, sort of assume a certain knowledge after an initial overview of Polanski's work. So it's really written for a Polanski mm -hmm. fan. Uh, and so I, I'm not really doing a kind of chronological trek through his work, rather trying to parse certain kinds of uh, themes and uh, ideas and motifs that recur and talking about films as they happen to come up based on those um, uh, issues. Hmm. And we have James Greenberg, your, a couple copies of your lush volume, Roman Polanski Retrospective. Tell me your approach then, you know, given, given that each book has to approach the filmography in a new way. You've written the newest book on Polanski. Mm -hmm. What uh, what direction do you want to take? I should I should add it's also the only book that he's ever participated with. Yes, important important to note. None, none of them have had that before yours. No, and it wasn't easy to come by. <laughs> Why do you think it wasn't easy to come by? Why do you think he's been hesitant to cooperate before? Um, I think so much has been written about him, so much about his personal life that uh, – he he regards it as a snowball. One thing is written and then someone else picks it up and it continues. And whether it's true or not, it becomes uh, uh, the gospel. And I think he um, he's kind of sick of it or he certainly has no no reason to talk about it. And when I approached him and I again, I I'd interviewed him a number of times over the years, I said, Roman, this is going to be a book about uh your movies, and he said, "Okay, I'll think about it." <laughs> he'd, he'd heard that one before, perhaps. Uh, he wasn't. He was uh, uh, leery that uh, a publisher would really want to do a book of, uh, just about his work, and and I assured him uh, over a period of time that yes, we're just going to deal with the work, mm -hmm. and uh, eventually he said, uh, "I remember I was talking to him and he said, okay," mm -hmm. and it was it was. Just and then once he agreed to do it, uh, he was very generous with his time, and um, uh, very cooperative. And in fact, he I was there last uh, August uh, was the last time I interviewed him in person. He allowed me to go through his uh, photo archives, which was uh, quite a thrill. Uh, it's like uh, a, a closet in your in your house with a bunch of boxes, except these boxes are. Or, or labeled Chinatown, uh, cul-de-sac, repulsion, and, and, and uh, student days. There's, uh, I was literally pouring through uh, childhood pictures and 
uh, relatives who uh, he didn't even know who they, who they were, mm-hmm. and uh, it was uh, as I said thrilling, and I and I was able to discover some uh, uh, some real uh, things I hadn't seen before. Mm-hmm. How much does the process of trying to really focus as much as you can on the work and only the work? You know, how different does that already make your book from previous books? I mean, it does, does ignoring, I don't know, were you ignoring the personal life? Can you ignore the personal life? Because these leak in no matter who the artist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's a very good question. Uh, I think uh, in any artist, uh, you, you have to uh, consider the personal life and, uh, uh, you know, what what's what's inform their sensibility and what's created their their artistic sensibility their aesthetics and uh polanski's no different than that plus which he has this uh fabulous you know fabulous not as in great but just um this oversized life Mm -hmm. that uh you couldn't you couldn't create or imagine if you wanted to and uh I think most people who are listening to this uh, know some of the details, mm-hmm. but uh, it's yes, it's it's impossible not to uh, talk about uh, some of the the events, the the Manson killings, and the uh, the um, the assault in uh, you know the sexual assault that keeps him out of this country to this day. As I was going into the book, I was wondering. I have to mention them. I have to acknowledge them. I can't n- pretend that they're not there. It's an elephant in the room. You can't uh, not uh, say that these things happened. So I dispense with it uh, early on in the uh, in the introduction in the in the beginning part of the book, and mm. and I said, you know, uh, he has had an incredible uh, life, and uh, yes, it makes a remarkable story, but it's not what we're dealing with here. Mm. This is a book about his movies. And uh, I, I add to that that I, I don't hesitate to make uh, biographical connections uh, to his films where they're necessary. Mm. And um, there's, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a temptation to overdo that, uh, and I don't know what the line is to uh, emphasizing his biography. And in some films... It's quite obvious. The pianist, uh, he's open about talking about that. Um, uh, the story is not his, but the incidents that he dramatizes are right out of his life. Mm. Uh, some of the brutality he witnessed uh, with his father uh, in, in the Krakow uh, ghetto and uh, uh, some of the, the staging is, is right out of his uh Right out of his memory, mm. he, he clearly and says he used pieces of his life. There's no hiding of anything here. There's no embedding of of elements of his life. He he used them as as a creator would. Yeah, I mean, and uh, he waited. Uh, I think in terms of doing the pianist, he I think it was inevitable that he was going to do a Holocaust project, and I think he knew that it was inevitable he was going to do a Holocaust project. It was just a question of. Uh, finding the right material and the right time in his life. Um, some years before, he had been offered uh, Schindler's List by Spielberg to see if he wanted to direct it. 
And he turned it down for a couple of reasons. One, it was the Krakow ghetto, and it was too close to home, and it was just too emotional for him to do. And also, uh, he wasn't ready to do it. Mm. And uh, then he found the uh, the Spielmann uh, uh, memoir, and he realized this was the material. Again, this was not a a story that came along uh, very often, and now was the time to do the Holocaust uh, story. But... uh, uh, there are many uh, uh, events in the film that are that are out of his uh, out of his uh, history. I think the uh, when um, Spielmann uh, escapes uh, and his family's going off to the camp, and and the a guard tells him, uh, you know, get out of here, run away. I think that happened to Polanski, mm-hmm. and a killing on the street where a um, uh, an SS just takes out a gun and uh, executes a woman for no apparent reason. He had witnessed that. Mm. So uh, these things are, are, are present. James Morrison, you, you mentioned earlier that the, the, the way that you drew out themes in your book on Polanski, and you know, given some of the themes people do draw out from Polanski's work, the, the paranoia, the huntedness you can find in a lot of them. I mean, he, you look at his life, it's almost like you're being dared to draw parallels, aren't you? Uh, well, like James' book, mine uh, is on Polanski's work, and there's barely a mention of, mm-hmm. of biographical details. Uh, uh, on the other hand, there is a streak of perversity that comes through in, in interviews with Polanski that suggests that there is almost some literal kind of dare <laughs> because the moment <laughs> mm-hmm. any kind of biographical approach to his work is broached, of course, mm-hmm. he either uh, ends the interview uh, in, mm-hmm. in many cases or uh, or uh, becomes very, yeah. very uh, agitated. Bristles at it. Mm-hmm. So you take it from experience, this is true? Is, as you, can, you can say he bristles at it as well? Well, I, I think there, uh, there are places he'll go and there are places he won't go. And if he doesn't want to go there, he'll usually make a joke mm-hmm. and, and, and deflect it. He's uh, quite playful. Mm-hmm. And people think that um, might have this image of him as being serious and, and, and dark. And, and in, in real life, he's... Um, Quite, uh, quite charming, and uh, uh, loves to tell stories and jokes, elaborate uh, sometimes. And um, he, if it's a question he doesn't want to answer, he'll like any other um, experienced uh, director who's been interviewed a lot, or uh, if it's something he doesn't want to talk about, uh, he's skilled in deflecting it. Well, even so. Uh We've been talking about his work in terms of the question of whether particular films are, quote, personal or not, unquote. But I I, I, I don't think that we mean uh, uh, anything having to do with the biographical elements of his life, but rather a kind of sensibility mm-hmm. that uh, emerges and remains consistent from film to film. Uh, it's still the case, however, that... Uh, my own sense of what Polanski is most interested in thematically uh, has to do with questions of domination and subjugation. Mm. Almost all of the films are about a kind of power relation, a power struggle. um, And uh, uh, what makes them 
intricate and, and complex is that while the uh, emotional investments that you feel in, in the film on the part of the filmmaker uh, are, are almost entirely with the victim in these encounters, it's not always that clear. <laughs> so the emotional investments are very, very, uh, are often very hard to pin down and they shift. Mm. Uh, so uh, once one realizes what is the case, that almost all of Polanski's films uh, concern in some literal way uh, rape scenes, um, then... Uh, you know, uh, uh, it doesn't make me necessarily want to rush back to Polanski's life and feel as if I've somehow got the key right. to the uh, the the case that keeps him out of the United States. But it does make me uh, see some additional level to the work. Hmm. It's facile to uh, to reduce it to a one on one relationship, but it is. Uh, something that's there and something that I think gives it, gives the work some resonance in, in some ways. When, when did Polanski's work begin resonating with you, uh, James Greenberg? When, when did you, when did you first realize this was a director that had created a cinematic world you, you wanted to go deeper into? That's a good question. I, I, I never, I haven't really thought about it. Uh, what, um, when he piqued my uh, cinematic imagination. Uh, and I, I can't remember the first film of his that I saw. I do remember seeing Chinatown when it came out mm. and uh, walking out of the theater on a hot summer night and, and just being, uh, the expression goes, blown away by it. Mm. I, I was... Uh, it, I was disoriented the way that you rarely are in uh, coming out of movies anymore, mm. uh, that it just uh, something sh about your world shifted or, or some uh, worldview was uh, was uh, enforced or or something that you hadn't expected. I mean, the the, the fatalism and the uh, the uh, negativity of it was mm. uh was just startling, I think, uh, even at that time when it was kind of a nihilistic era, uh, when it came out in um, 74. But uh, Polanski takes it to, uh, I think, new extremes. And that was a crux of his argument with uh, Robert Town about the screenplay. The original Town screenplay, um, uh, Evelyn Mulray uh, kills uh, her father, kills Noah Cross, uh, she presumably gets off with some light jail time, and uh, given the territory, it's a relatively happy ending. Mm. And uh, Polanski knew that uh, that was wrong. He knew it was wrong for the material, and if it was going to be uh, true to the events and the characters, there had to be um, that kind of ending where... Uh, the bad guys get off. Mm. So mm. no bad deed goes punished. <laughs> <laughs> you, you mentioned before, James Morrison, the, the sense of your, uh, the viewers' sympathies shifting, your allegiances shifting, not quite knowing where to put your sympathies ultimately in a Roman Polanski movie. 
this disorientation that you mentioned, James Greenberg, sounds, it sounds a little bit, is this all of a piece, this kind of, this disorientation where you're just not sure where to throw your lot in, in a Polanski movie? Well, uh, let's take an example. Let's take the example of Rosemary's Baby, which is my favorite Polanski film and the first one that I saw mm. uh, on television as a kid. Uh, I, I'd been forbidden to see it <laughs> because it was run with a disclaimer mm. that children should not watch it. Mm. And uh, But I sneaked into a, a back room and watched it and, uh, you know, uh, uh, was a kid but sensed that the uh, very intense sympathy with the violation of the character of Rosemary was somewhat complicated by what is an essentially comic treatment of the material. Mm. <laughs> James Greenberg is, is, of course, absolutely right to suggest that there is this sort of core of uh, a, a comic sensibility at work mm. in, in uh, Polanski. So does does this subvert or undermine the intensity of uh, sympathy that the film appears to be expressing with the character of Rosemary, a, a painfully vulnerable character? Mm. I don't think it does, but it certainly complicates it. Mm. Uh, and I think a very similar kind of dynamic is visible in most of Polanski's films, with perhaps the exceptions of Repulsion and Tess. Repulsion seems to me to be the Polanski film that has the least comic shading alongside of Tess. Uh, but they both have what many critics might see as sort of incongruous comic set pieces, the <laughs> scenes in the bar, for example, in mm -hmm. Repulsion and the uh, scene with the housekeeper near the end of Tess and so on. There's always a sense of absurdity that uh, that he uh, that he's picked up from uh, very influenced, I think, by Beckett, very influenced by uh, Theater of the Absurd, uh, the Surrealists. And I, and I think there's always that... Uh, uh, kind of uh, unexpected, uh, unexpected scene, even in a film like Repulsion, which essentially is not a uh, uh, not a lot of laughs. <laughs> uh, I just seen, I just saw Rosemary's Baby last night. It was showing at the Cinematheque, and I hadn't seen it on a big screen for for many years, and it was just a treat to see how great it it looks. And uh, just as an aside, I would. Uh, say to everyone and to myself, get out to the theaters more and see <laughs> see movies on the big screen. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's a, some, something you can do here, and indeed there have been many screenings in association with your book, correct? Uh, that they, at the Cinematheque Polanski films. We we did three nights. Uh, we did uh, Tess and uh, Frantic, and 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 last night was uh, Rosemary's Baby and Repulsion, and there was one other. But, uh, yeah, it's a great opportunity to – I watch tests in a restored version. And uh, it's – when I was doing the book, uh, mostly I was watching it on a big screen t television and sometimes even on my computer, which is fine for studying, I'm sure, as, as James knows. Uh, but the experience of watching it with an audience in a theater is, uh, is how – a filmmaker like Polanski uh, sees his work and makes his work. Mm -hmm. 
and, and it's much more immersive. Do, do you think that Polanski's films of the 60s, 70s, even a bit later, do they strike audiences the same way now as they did then? Do you think the impact is the same? Is it, it may be the same degree of impact. Is it the same kind of impact? The way I was describing that Chinatown hit me, mm. uh, and this is the, you know, uh, mid, mid seventies. And, uh, I think it, it, um, touched a nerve in, uh, what was happening in our society, what was happening in, in our culture. Nowadays, if, uh, if someone would see it, um, they might not be as uh, impressed by the, uh, the nihilism. I think they've seen years of, uh, of uh, crooked politicians and, and corrupt uh, public servants and uh, <laughs> uh, betrayal and... Uh, you know, I, I think the expectation is that that um, things would uh, turn out for the worst, mm. and, and I think that's something in um, that that you see over and over in Polanski's films is 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 they uh, they do turn out for the worst, and uh, he doesn't sugarcoat them mm. uh, for the most part. You've mentioned the the nihilism of Chinatown a few times, and we've we've put. Polanski in the context of the new Hollywood, the late 60s and, and 70s, which would cluster in with directors like a Robert Altman or a Francis Coppola or a Martin Scorsese emerging then, they all seem to have a kind of a nihilistic bent at that time, did they not? I mean, did Polanski crystallize uh, the, the nihilism of a broader movement? I would say uh, that he did. And I would say that his films uh, take on resonance with the years. This, I suppose, could be said of any great director, but what makes Polanski a special case is exactly that quality of um, uh, a sense in which the worst has already happened. Mm. You know, right. I mean, at least, at least it's over. <laughs> well, well, in a way, I mean, you know, the sense in which the worst has already happened could be understood as one of the things that enables a certain comic treatment. It's kind of at the core of a lot of absurdism. Uh, 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 but, you know, take again the case of Rosemary's Baby. The, the most terrible thing that could happen happens very early in the film, Rosemary is raped by the devil. Yes. No spoilers there. <laughs> uh, it's 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 early enough that, uh, uh, and most people going to the film know that anyway. So what we're watching in the course of the film is essentially the aftermath to the worst that has already happened. <laughs> and we know it. Mm. Rosemary doesn't, but everybody else does. And it's so obvious that Rosemary should know it. Mm. That's part of what makes the film uh, so excruciating. Mm. Uh, that's, again, one of the key features of the movie's aesthetic, the aesthetic experience the movie offers, excruciation. Mm. Right? Um, that ought to be a title of a Polanski movie, excruciation, shouldn't it? <laughs> excruciating. <laughs> But, uh, you know, one could say something very similar of a lot of the, the films. Uh, many of them, in fact, turn on violations that have occurred before the plot begins. Chinatown, mm -hmm. for example, uh, has at its core a rape that has occurred 
uh, well before the, the narrative commences. The same is true of Death and the Maiden. So uh, I think, in fact, uh, you know, one of the things the New Hollywood did, of course, was to mainstream a kind of darker sensibility than classical Hollywood had had. Mm-hmm. And we've gone further and further with that since the New Hollywood, mm-hmm. uh, that is in the 80s and 90s. So, uh, you know, Polanski's films seem probably as current as anyone's from the 60s and 70s, uh, in part because of that sensibility that now seems uh, not that uncommon, though Polanski's version of it remains extremely distinct. Mm-hmm. There, is a, there is a realism that came out of that period of, of cinema and uh, that Polanski enhanced his work, enabled him in a sense to do uh, his work. Um, I, in the course of talking about the book, I've been asked, uh, well, what would have happened to Polanski if he stayed in, uh, was stayed in uh, America and had been able to work in Hollywood? And, um, you know, of course, it's a tantalizing question. I don't know the answer, but I, I would say that he might have been chewed up by Hollywood because mm-hmm. the uh, kind of movies that he makes, uh, the uh, idiosyncratic and... Uh, uh, personal films uh, that he was doing in the 60s and his colleagues were doing, uh, they uh, they become few and far between. Mm-hmm. And I think if he had been... Uh, he, his sensibility... What was different than, than his work... Uh, from, from, in his work from Coppola and Altman was he was European and specifically East European... And I think that really made a difference in his uh, his sensibility and what he brought to it. But uh, had he been continued to work in 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 this country, and it would have been nice if he could have uh, had access to material and done it uh, as he wished to. But I, I think in a, in a way, be, being forced to work in Europe uh, kept his vision intact. Uh, the films weren't always. Uh, you know, wonderful, but uh, they were always interesting. And I'm not sure you could say the same thing if he had continued to work in, in this country. There, there is, don't you think, though, in those questions, kind of a longing for the outsider's perspective Polanski could bring, to, he can bring, has brought, could still bring to America, is there not? I mean, he's, he has a kind of, I don't want to call it cynicism, but we've been trying to describe what it is he has, and that's something America always, that's a light America always needs shown on it, doesn't it? Yeah, and I, I, there's a tradition of the outsider uh, showing us what uh, what he sees, and um, uh, yeah, it would be wonderful to uh, if, if he could uh, come here or even um, from where he from his base in Paris do a film that uh, commented on contemporary America. But uh, I think his knowledge of contemporary America is not. Uh, it's not firsthand, obviously. Right. I mean, he, he always asks about it. He's he's up on politics. Uh, I've had uh, political discussions with him, and uh, he knows what happens in the states. And uh, uh, but it's not the same thing. So he would be certainly at a disadvantage. But uh, it's again, it's a tantalizing thing to think about. Uh, Polanski making a film about America the way uh, Antonioni made a film about America in uh, Zabriskie Point. Right, in, in a sense, I suppose he did. James, James Morrison, uh, did you, would you like to hear what Polanski has to say about America today, cinematically? 
Very much so. And, mm. you know, of course, he, he his uh, most recently released film was set in mm. America, Carnage. I think that the limitations James speaks of in terms of firsthand knowledge are reflected in the choice of project. You know, mm. a film that doesn't leave a, a single apartment. Yes. Uh, is one in which you don't have to worry too much that you're not tapped into the zeitgeist because you're really doing a kind of more insular comedy of manners. Uh, but it's beautifully done, in my opinion. I think that if Polanski had stayed in Hollywood, well, we know, of course, that the new Hollywood ended quite unceremoniously. Mm. Uh, most of the directors who did gain great prominence in the 1970s weren't doing much by the 80s. Uh, some of the greatest of them went into kind of voice in the wilderness periods. Robert Altman comes to mind in the 1980s, for example, that are, uh, uh, you know, not that different from what you could call a voice in the wilderness period of Polanski mm -hmm. in the 1980s, uh, during which decade I think he produced only uh, Pirates and Frantic. There's something... Something about the 1980s inhospitable to the auteur, especially of Polanski's kind, right? Very much so. The turn mm. to big budget filmmaking and uh, uh, the turn away from adventurous small personal films would not uh, would not have been, I think, that congenial to Polanski's sensibility. I would have been fascinated to see him do something of that kind. Mm. Uh, you know, I think he might very well have been interested in doing so when he came to the United States. Uh, one might never have thought that he would be making a film version of a, uh, a an extremely popular bestseller like mm -hmm. Rosemary's Baby. Um, uh, you know, that wasn't Rosemary's Baby might not be the first film that comes to mind when you think of the kinds of experimental films of the new Hollywood. Mm -hmm. uh, for my money, it's one of the greatest. And it does within the parameters of the of the uh you know it's sort of generic um uh setting uh extraordinary things mm. i would have loved to see him do an indiana jones film oh my <laughs> he, he's talked about that in in an indirect way uh something about uh doing an action film and what he could do with it and uh you know, he, 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 he'll often complain about something he went to see at the theater and it was just noise. And, uh, I, I think if Batman, he was the latest Batman. He was talking about it. He went with his, um, with, with his kids and, uh, he, he just can't stand it. And I, I think he, he's thought about that idea about, um, you know, doing a, a an action film and, uh, you know, in 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 some ways, uh, frantic was a little bit of that, and that it was a kind of a generic uh, uh, American project, and um, uh, that he, to some extent, I think he was able to give it a uh, the Polanski touch, the uh, the flavor of um, uh, of Paris. And the most perverse thing about that movie is, uh, and his goal was to. Uh, Make Paris look unappealing, <laughs> and and he he uh, he succeeds in it. Uh, in the in in the book, I compare it to what Woody Allen did uh, to Manhattan in uh, in, in Manhattan. That mm -hmm. uh, you know the beginning of Manhattan. There's the uh, you know the glorification, the romant the romanticizing of New York. Well, Polanski. 
Polanski wouldn't have that. His his goal was to kill tourism. <laughs> <laughs> he, he didn't want Americans coming to Paris, mm. and uh, he shows it at its worst. But you know, and I think that's the most intriguing part of that film. Uh, and uh, again, I think it's a film that sort of suffers from uh, a story uh, unraveling and r- and running out of steam. How do you how do you feel about uh, Ferrante? I think the first 20 minutes of Frantic are among the best work yeah. that he ever did. It's yeah. a, an right extraordinary... In, right exactly. in from the airport at the yes. beginning is... It's a very Polanski setup is that not much is happening, but there's that sense that something bad is going to happen. The, the dread, very still camera, uh, the music, the, the way it's framed, uh, the lighting... Uh, you just know it's it creates it creates a um, an instant mood that uh, is really a master at work. There's not many directors that could do that uh, with such a shorthand. Absolutely not. And I think he was depending on this sort of bravura opening set piece to. Uh, keep the rest of the movie going in a way. On the other hand, he was also, I think, uh, doing something that isn't at all uncharacteristic. The rest of the movie has a quality of inertia about it. And, you know, he's interested in inertia. That isn't, you know, The Ninth Gate, for example, is a kind of experiment in uh, playing off these sort of buoyant, over-the-top set pieces with these very inert kinds of... Um, sequences that seem to have a little bit of an Antonioni-like dead time to them. And, you know, I think he really gets into these kinds of counterpointing effects. Mm. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, he mentions and, and J- James, uh, interview material, uh, brings this up, uh, Odd Man Out as one of his fav- fa- favorite films. Mm-hmm. And I can absolutely see that as remote as it may seem to be from a lot of what seems most central to his work because the sort of tonal variations in it mm-hmm. from moments of great tension and suspense and then these kinds of intermediate moments in which nothing much is happening. Mm. You know, one could say the same thing of Rosemary's Baby. Uh, a lot of horror aficionados think it's not scary enough, you know, <laughs> and in in a way, I suppose it's not. But it's in part because what he wants us to see is this initial mm-hmm. horrific event that then shades all of these activities of everyday life. I mean, most of the movie, we're watching Rosemary redecorate her apartment. um, So I suppose the horror aficionado might be disappointed, but that horror aficionado is missing what is really happening, which is how the worst has already happened, and it is infusing everything we see so that even if it seems to be very you know, lacking in energy, (laughs) it still has that undercurrent. But when it is scary, it is damn scary. And uh, I think that's something that Polanski likes to do is he really takes his time and and, uh, builds up to it and uh, makes the tension excruciating. There's that word again. Mm -hmm. In when he was doing Repulsion, there's not there's not a scare in that for the first fifty minutes mm-hmm. when um, Catherine Deneuve opens her uh, her uh, uh, closet uh, and and the window reflects uh, uh, a man in the in, in the mirror and 
you jump because this is um, 50 minutes into the film and, and it's slow building, building, bu- building the deterioration. And um, the people who were financing the movie, this uh, company called the Compton Group, better known for doing softcore porn, <laughs> they, they were trying to uh, uh, step up the uh, ladder of respectability, but not too far. Yes, indeed. Yeah. So, uh, but they were not happy that... Where are the thrills? Where 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 are the scares? It's uh, you, you know they'd see the dailies and it was fifty minutes into the film and there wasn't anything yet. Mm-hmm. And Polanski, it, part of it is is you know a perverse pleasure in uh, doing that, but it's his style. He he takes his time over. Um, he's not in a hurry to uh, to get to a um, to get to point B. He'll he'll. He'll guide the audience, and then when you get there, I think it's a bigger, a, a bigger punch, a bigger, uh, more emotional. Like as I would certainly say in Rosemary's Baby, that uh, the uh, some of the events in there are are just uh, pretty pretty startling when they when they do happen. Much of what we've said today would seem to I a mean, listener who wasn't that familiar with Polanski might think that it's a, he's a director who was very who, who fit a certain era. And he's still working, but maybe his his window of opportunity to really tap into the culture has passed. But James Greenberg, you know, your book is brand new. It's it's a substantial book. It's a it's a lush book. That the book itself that that it's published and the screenings that have gone on at the Cinematheque indicate that the interest in Polanski has not has not waned. As it's, it seems to have grown. There's there's still. There's, we 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 can't, we can't let listeners think that he's not relevant, can we? Because clearly he's still there. There is even if his films now are not, if you you maybe wouldn't consider them up to his films of the seventies. You know, there's there's still a, a current of interest. I, I, I would uh, take issue with the, the fact that his films aren't up to the films uh, of his earlier films. Oh, I think okay. I think I think the pianist is a, just a brilliant piece of work, oh. and um, Polanski thinks that's his greatest film. That's his that's the film he wants on his tombstone, oh. and. Uh, I think it's just an, an amazing piece of filmmaking. Uh, mm. uh, it's kind of the culmination, in a way, of his life's work. It's not. It's not my. I I love the film and I respect it. It's not just doesn't happen to be my. Maybe it's my second or, thir- or third favorite wow. of, of his, but I think it's a remarkable piece of work and uh, the skill that he's uh, acquired over his uh over his career all comes to bear on that film mm-hmm. the attention to detail and and creating the 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 setting and the mood and uh, uh the ability to uh make it feel real he he was very careful in that film and it's not shot the way um Chinatown and and Rosemary's Baby is with the the camera over the shoulder the subjective camera he really took a step back in, in the pianist, and it's um, very almost objective. You know, these these events are so terrible. Just just look at it, and he 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 thought it would be obscene to uh, to uh, milk the emotion out of it. Mm. Just uh, you know, see what happens, see these events, and but. Uh, I think it's a extraordinary piece of work, and I would say too that the Ghostwriter is a very uh, entertaining and, and well done uh, thriller, and, uh, well worth seeing. 
And then this is exactly what I want to underscore to listeners who might not know that this is Roman Polanski is a name from film history, yes, but also a working filmmaker. He may be 80 years old, but I mean, he's not in any sense slowing down. It seems like, I mean, you've, you've uh, had the most recent contact with him. He's, we're not, we have not seen the last of Roman Polanski by any means, have we? Uh, by no means. Uh, he would, uh, he, he, yes, he would be the first to say that. He has a film coming out. Uh, it was played at Cannes called Venus and Fur. Mm-hmm. It's a uh, two-hander based on the play that was on Broadway. Mm-hmm. It's about a uh, director uh, casting, casting a play and, uh, about uh masochism and the uh uh he, his wife plays the uh, lead, the lead female role and it's kind of a uh a kinky mysterious uh, sexy uh comedy mm. in a way and uh that should be coming our way in the next uh, few months or certainly by the spring He's uh, trying to put together a project to do his version of the Dreyfus Affair, mm-hmm. a period piece in France. He he does not seem like an eighty-year-old person. When I when I went to see him in um, last summer, I hadn't seen him in about four or five years, and uh, he looked exactly the same. <laughs> he it's a, he's a wonder of science or genetics or or, or what have you. Or will. I think he just wills himself. He's a person of incredible will to have survived uh, some of the events of his life. And uh, he's, he's trim, he's fit, he's got a f- full head of hair. He does not uh, look or seem like a person who's 80. He's, and I asked him, uh, why do you continue to uh, work? And he said, well... Uh, I'm still learning. I'm, it's still fascinating. I love it. Um, you know, this is what I wanted to do. This is what I've always wanted to do. And uh, uh, I, I'm going to con- continue to do. And, uh, you know, there's no reason, there's no reason to, for him to stop. It's still, uh, and I think he's happiest when he's on the set of a movie. I think uh, he, he said that and he told me that, that uh, uh, that's where he loves to be. Mm. And James Morrison, in, in, in the years since your book on Polanski has come out, what what would you add to what you said about him then? You know, but he's he's made more than more than a couple movies since your book, right? It's it's only been a few years, but he's he's put things out. He ha- uh, since the book my book came out in two thousand seven, and he has released two films since two. then: The Ghost oh, Rider, not more than a couple, a couple, <laughs> The <laughs> Ghost Rider and Carnage, mm. both of which I admire greatly. And, um, you know, in, in my book, I do talk about the phases of his career. And I, I argue that, um, you know, uh, it, it's really only Rosemary's Baby in Chinatown, uh, that you could argue are, are films that provided him with essentially unlimited resources mm. in a way but what what does that mean anyway i, I mean i think in, in terms of thinking about uh film uh it, it's always a, a complicated thing his films of the 60s discover great bounty in mm. their constraints you know they're essentially low budget they're sort of like b movies in a way but so were fritz lang's films of the 50s and orson wells and those served i think as the models of Polanski's earliest films. Uh, how do you, uh, you know, 
do amazing things with limited resources. Um, in a way, after his Hollywood career, he may have occasionally found himself once again working with limited resources. Mm -hmm. But those early films uh, are the ones that, that really articulate the sensibility that we're talking about. And there is about it a quality of modesty, mm -hmm. you know, it's why it's a little hard to imagine an Indiana Jones, Roman Polanski <laughs> film or, yes. or a kind of, uh, you know, big budget. You know, when he makes the film about the Dreyfus affair, it's not going to be like Les Miserables, you know, yes. it's, uh, <laughs> it's going to, uh, it's going to do something else. So there's always, I think, a certain resistance mm. to, uh, uh, thinking that if you have, uh, you know, some version of unlimited resources, you're suddenly uh, a great filmmaker, you know? Yes. And Polanski is never a filmmaker whom one would look to to tap into the zeitgeist, really. Mm -hmm. Although there are topical reference points in most of his movies, mm -hmm. it's his sensibility that is contemporary. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that that's what makes his films of the new Hollywood uh, more lasting in appeal, mm -hmm. probably, than, say, medium cool <laughs> or some very, very topical film yes. of the new Hollywood. They were all over the place in the mm -hmm. new Hollywood. Mm -hmm. But their sensibilities don't remain contemporary in the way that Polanski's does. Mm. I think that's true. I, I think the the foundation of, of Polanski's films are uh, uh, more philosophical, uh, deeper, broader than, uh, than the political events that uh, may have inspired other films. And... Um, that's why they they feel they feel fresher. They're not they're not period pieces when you go back and, and see them. Uh, I would comment on on your, on your point about uh, uh, working with limited resources in his earlier films. Uh, he bemoans that, uh, but uh, when we were talking about Repulsion, which he he did with uh, very on a shoestring and. Uh, did some very innovative uh, things just out of necessity, and that's where uh, filmmakers, the Fritz Lang you mentioned, really uh, their solution to problems is is what what's amazing. And I think he he did that um, quite um, quite well in Repulsion. But uh, uh, when we were talking about it, uh, he said. Well, I'm I'm not really happy with it. It's uh, you know we didn't have enough money, we didn't have enough time, and the effects, you know, the hands coming through the wall and uh, the walls cracking, all of that stuff. God, I could have done it so much better with uh, with what with the resources now with CGI, and you know I I think it's really a shabby piece of work. Mm. <laughs> and, and, and and yes, I that was my reaction. I said, you know, when when these great films of paranoia and uh i said well uh you do mean shabby uh shabby effective or just shabby so he said well you know i i didn't expect it to be su as successful as it was so i guess i'd have to say uh shabby but effective <laughs> <laughs> sometimes you know that's that's what you can hope for but shabby but effective i think i think we would all agree that there's each each and every one of uh 
Roman Polanski's films exceeds that description in its own way. Even even a one like The Ninth Gate, which, as I said, was still the first one I saw theatrically. So, you know, I'll, I've, I've got a place for it. In any case, I've been speaking today at LARB HQ about the works of filmmaker Roman Polanski with two authorities on the subject, James Morrison, memoirist and novelist, author of the contemporary film director series book on Roman Polanski, and James Greenberg, author of the brand new Roman Polanski a retrospective. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. This has been the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I've been Colin Marshall. You can find more from me at colinmarshall.org and more from the LARB at lareviewofbooks.org. Thanks. <laughs>